Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books and World Affairs podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Gordon. Uh, Historically, discourses of racial, civilizational, and sexual difference have inevitably been entangled with, shaped by, and constitutive of institutions that divide up the land and allocate rights of access and use. Yet traditionally, political theorists and social scientists have thought of property as an exclusively economic category and of property rights as institutions that reflect a deeper objective balance of power between class forces. This economistic understanding of property has not only served to erase the racial Racialized, colonial, and gendered foundations of capitalism, but has also led to contemporary political and social theorists interested in identity and new social movements to abandon the critique of property altogether. In his recent book, Towards an Improper Politics, out from Edinburgh University Press in 2020, my guest Mark Deveni argues that property belies any crude distinction between the economic and the political. Instead, he emphasizes that political orders always link the ability to appropriate land, labor, and commodities with discourses that delimit proper modes of being. He argues for an improper politics that challenges both the distribution of property and the norms of propriety that serve to justify inequality. Mark Deveni is a professor at the University of Brighton. Hello, Mark. Hi. Thanks very much, Jeff. That's a a nice, neat introduction. Um, So why did you decide to write towards an improper politics, and how does it fit into your broader research agenda? Uh, the, the book originated in many, many years ago, as, as many books do, in the work I completed my PhD at the University of Essex with Ernest de la Clau. But in the years subsequent to finishing my PhD, I finished in about 1998, um, I'd done some work on deliberative democracy and on post-Marxism, but I became increasingly convinced that in the framework that was established by Ernest de la Clau and by Chantal Mouffe, they hadn't really addressed the work in political economy that characterized Ernesto Leclerc's earlier work. Um, so there was just, there's first of all, an academic frustration, a sense that uh, there was an opening in the work that they had developed, but that opening hadn't been taken. But that was also linked to perhaps a more profound political frustration 
Um, the political frustration originates in the years in which I lived in South Africa, and I experienced the end of apartheid, and I saw the extraordinary inequalities that still structure that country, but that are organized around property. So one of my first intuitions was that we need, once again, to politicize property. But in politicizing property, we need to take one of the intuitions that they had developed, that social orders are contingent, and ask what it means if we view property not as a thing, not as something given, not as a legal or a moral um, question, which we can either justify or reject or refine, but rather to characterize property as itself a form of articulation, a form of hegemony, a particular way of configuring the world, and in configuring the world, a way of determining what people can or cannot do in their relations both to each other and to the world in which they live. Um, and that then that led to a whole range of questions which I explore in the book. But that was the, the, the initial impulse. Um, I should say, actually, there was a third impulse uh, and something that uh, some colleagues uh, get frustrated with me when I say it, but it was a frustration with Marxism. Um, in my view, what many debates on the left have been stuck in more or less a Marxist conceptualization of property, which reduces property to being the infrastructural condition for the realization of profits. Uh, and I think that's just a profound error. And post-Marxist theorists haven't ta- had never taken on the question of property, its links to propriety, its links to inequality, in a way that allowed them to understand what a radical democratic or a democratic future might look like. Uh, So the origins of the book are my own personal biography, but also my intellectual biography. Right. And it's it's not surprising to me that uh, your time in South Africa was influential for you because I see um, um, connections between this book and other recent works on uh, rethinking the politics of property and the relationship between um, property and uh, discourses of, of, of racism and, and, and gender and, and uh, colonial uh, relations um, by people like Brennan Bandar and um, uh, the anthropologist Christian Lund has also done a lot of really interesting work on this, looking at um, um, uh, he, he, he focuses both on Af- West African settings as well as in Indonesia and thinks about the relationship between um, property and uh, identity and recognition uh, as as uh, uh foundation contingent foundations of social order um um and he's uh he's kind of started a a really interesting research program on that and development studies and i think that um it's it's really appropriate to me that people who focus on these um uh colonial or post-colonial settings are the ones who are doing uh a lot of this rethinking of the of the the deeper political roots of property and the connection between property and, and racial inequality, because uh, I think that people post-Marxists or Marxists who are, who are grounded in the European experience on the continent itself may easily lose sight of, of these connections. 
um, even the, though the, I would... the, the two experiences I draw on, Jeff, um, one is South Africa, and I, you, you probably will have noticed that there's a number of examples I draw upon from what's taken place in South Africa. But the other is Ireland, which is also about my personal history because my parents are originally from Ireland, but my ancestors were uh, moved off the land. They were peasants who were moved off the land in the 1780s, 1790s. And, of course, the trajectory of a family is determined in large part by one's access to an inheritance of property over generations. Um, and, of course, Ireland was also one of the places where the original forms of measurement that the British then used in the colonial expeditions around the world, Ireland was, of course, the test case for the plantation system, for example. Um, so, so, so for me, it was uh, it in one sense it was all, it was partly about British colonial and imperial power, given that I live in the United Kingdom, but it was secondly as well about um, showing that this is directly relevant here. Um, that these practices that were deployed in the so-called colonies make their way back, um, and that, uh, yeah, both in Ireland, but also South Africa and in other places. And, of course, it's not, um, you, you, you've you noted the work of other scholars, but I know Brenner's work very well, um, and Brenner and I have done some work together. Um, the the I think the key point here is that what took place in the areas that, that were previously colonised actually characterizes much of what happens in the countries we now live in as well. Yeah, and I think that that um, uh, scholarly return of focus or, or, or using um, um, post-colonial or, or um, theories that were developed in colonial settings to re-examine uh, the histories and, and political foundations of, uh, you know, the UK or the US or Western Europe are, are really important uh, uh, political moves and scholarly moves that uh, we need to see more of. Um, and one more thing about uh, Ireland, it's interesting to me because uh, um, I became interested in learning about uh, uh, the history of colonialism and capitalism in Ireland after reading, oddly enough, Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism, where he talks about how um, um, Ireland was uh, one of the first locations of race, of his understanding of, of racial capitalism. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so uh, moving to the to the content of the book yeah, now. Uh, sorry, yeah. I don't, Jeff, oh, yeah. I'm interrupting you. Sure. But, but but on Ireland, um, the you, you may have heard the phrase "beyond the pale." Um, so it, in Ireland, the British, when they when they colonized Ireland, the the pale was the area within a certain, uh, it was an area around Dublin, and outside the Pale was deemed to be an area where the savages lived. So the Pale had a, there was a, a sort of bordering, an order around the Pale that allowed people in and out. Um, but it was always deemed that people who came from outside the Pale were not part of civilization. Um, and that history of the so-called savages being outside London, uh, outside Dublin, forgive me, is in part played in the way in which Irish politics is understood today as well. Mm, fascinating. Um, okay, so so moving to the content of the book, uh, 
Um, a criticism of contemporary political and social theory since the so-called linguistic turn that began in the 1970s, um, and of which uh, I, I would consider uh, LeClau and Mouffe's work uh, to be an important contribution, um, is its social weightlessness, that is, its focus on identity and discourse and its skepticism about the utility of traditional Marxist categories like class have rendered it useless in the face of economic and ecological crisis. Yet rather than abandoning the linguistic turn altogether, you seek to use concepts associated with discourse theory like performativity, articulation, and hegemony to study property relations. What are the advantages of using discourse theory to study the core institutions of capitalism like property as compared to traditional Marxist analysis? Great. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. That's a great question. And of course, it's one that my some of my Marxist colleagues have put to me because they say you're doing work that, you know, in theory, with a little bit of adaptation, could simply fall into the Marxist tradition. Now, I'm going to turn the question on its head slightly, because in my view, Marxism has always been a form of idealism. It assumes the transparency of social order, and it assumes the adequacy of thought to the reality it supposedly reflects. And what it fails to recognize is the extent to which the the relationship between the reality we supposedly speak about and the language we use is in fact what we would call, or what Ernesto Leclerc called, a discourse, an articulated ensemble. Um, one of the examples that was developed by Ernesto Leclerc to explain this comes from New Reflections in the Revolution of Our Time. Um, and it's an example that's particularly important to me because it's about bricks. He gives the example to talking about a brick a bricklaying in response to Norman Jurass, who had developed a Marxist critique of his account, saying precisely where you began. This is a form of social weightlessness. And the Klaus says, No, look at it, look at bricklaying. He says, when you have two bricklayers, one of them is putting the bricks on the wall, the other's giving him the bricks and passing on the cement. Giving him or her the bricks and passing on the cement. And the Klaus says, we need to understand both the language and the objects that are part of this process as a discourse. So the discourse includes the so-called, and let's, for, for the purposes of argument, let's separate out the linguistic and the so-called material elements. But discourse includes both. So I, I've always, I've never understood this critique of discourse theory which reduces it to some form of linguistic idealism. It's a fairly typical Marxist response to discourse. The Klaus point, I think, instead, is something rather different, which is that in any discourse, there's a range of different elements which are linguistic, but which are also material. But once those elements come together, the configuration of the elements, a bit like what Wittgenstein called a language game, the configuration of the elements changes the meaning of all of the elements. So it's not to say that a brick isn't just you know, a, made up of a whole variety of different materials, that it's hard, etc. But as part of brick laying, as part of laying a wall, it performs certain functions. I demonstrate in the book the ways in which a brick can be remade. It's one of the examples I talk about in, in a chapter about Judith Butler. Um, but in that sense, my, so my first response is fairly straightforward. Discourse theory was never linguistic. 
In fact, what it does is it points to the limits of language. And this is what Marxist critics have found quite difficult to grasp. If language is limited in its ability to grasp an external world, uh, if it's inadequate to that world, then that world is capable of upsetting our language as much as languages and discourses are capable of intervening and remaking that world. In assuming the correspondence between words and things, I think Marxism is itself a form of idealism. So sorry to be, you know, to, to, to kind of have a, a, a philosophical um, as opposed to a political intervention here, but I think it's really important that we get that, is that what Leclerc is pointing to is discourse both combines a range of different elements, but secondly, all discourses are limited because of the failure to fully grasp the objects that we attempt to grasp through discourse. And in part, that failure means that we're always involved in some form of articulation that remakes the objects of discourse, both linguistic and, uh, and otherwise. Um, so if, if that's the first answer, and you may want to come back to me on that, um, the question then is why would, uh, why would I not hold on to some of the key categories? And one of them that you mentioned is, is of particular importance for me, and I talk about it at different points in the, in, in the book. It's the category of articulation. Um, Leclerc and Mouffe suggested in their early work that if the world we live in, come to terms with, is always a contingent order, but that order is in part sedimented, then of course there's always the possibility of re-articulating, relinking, remaking it in different ways. So from my point of view, articulation is a process of action in the world by subjects uh, that remakes both the subjects and the objects that are part of any discourse. Um, and I think the example that I've given of, um, of bricklaying or of language games um, hopefully makes that point. Um, if I go back to the bricklaying example, if you think about uh, how we might then extend their argument to explain this, we've, we've got a couple of people laying bricks, building a wall. But how does a discursive approach, a discourse theoretical approach, analyze this? Well, it's going to look, first of all, at the selling of labor, at the employment regulations, at the legal and political order that structures the ways in which those people are employed. It might look at where the bricks are made, where they come from. It might look at the quarry and the origins of the quarry. In the case of South Africa, for example, bricks had been made for centuries prior to colonization, but most of the bricks that now make up Johannesburg, the largest city in South Africa, most of those bricks come from a large global firm that produces bricks, but in the quarries that were there hundreds of years before, from the same hills on the same land. So what's the history of the making of the brick? Um, we think as well of how the brick becomes a form of property, how it's sold, how it's used. And we can think then of what the proper uses of the brick are. Sorry, I seem to have lost connection for a moment um, to you. Um, so, so from my point of view, a discourse theoretical approach is far preferable to going back to traditional forms of political economy. Um, I think it does more work. I think it's more interesting. 
And it allows us as well to identify the moments of fissure, the ruptures, the contingencies, rather than assuming those ruptures, you know, for example, the emergent revolutionary party, we can begin to identify a range of other fissures, a range of other moments where new forms of articulation become possible. One of the most important concepts in discourse theoretical approaches to setting politics is articulation, the novel combination of heterogeneous social elements or demands into a new political block in pursuit of a hegemonic project, which in turn changes the elements themselves. A major contribution of your book is to think of property as a technology of articulation. How does property shape space, objects, information, and relations between subjects in politically consequential ways? Great. Thanks, Jeff. That's a, 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 another great question about the book. Um, and it, it was one of the kind of, one of the things I struggled with for a while was how to conceptualize property as a form of articulation. And there was a, a moment when I realized oh, exactly. I'm sorry. What the I'm sorry. Uh, Mark, I'm trying to figure out what one of the most important concepts in discourse theoretical approaches to studying politics is articulation, the novel combination of heterogeneous social elements or demands into a new political block in pursuit of a hegemonic project, which in turn changes the elements themselves. A major contribution of your book is to think of property as a technology of articulation. How does property shape space, objects, information, and relations between subjects in politically consequential ways. Great. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, That's another great question. And it's something I struggled with for a while. I had a sense writing the book that property was not simply something that was given in the world, Um, but I was struggling to determine how how best to understand us. And I had a moment of realisation that changed the way in which I thought about property. I was reading a case of some potato farmers in Mexico who had for generations um, grown a particular type of potato. And at some point, this was in the 1990s, 1990s or early 2000s, uh, a firm in Los Angeles managed to map the DNA of the paper, of the potato. And having mapped the DNA of the potato, they then tried to make a claim to the farmers that the farmers would have to pay in order to continue growing the potatoes. Now, luckily, the farmers lost. They lost that argument, but they not the farmers, sorry. The company lost that argument, but they won the bigger argument because the potatoes, in order for the case to be won, in order for the farmers to continue operating in the way they had, they had to rethink their relationship to the land in terms of proxy. They had to make a legal claim to the potato and to the genetic infrastructure of the potato that would then allow them to continue planting it without having to pay. And they had to show that the company didn't have a prior property claim in the potato. Now, the key thing here is that their relationship to the world in which they live has been remade in terms of property. So even though the company lost the court argument, they won the bigger argument because henceforth the proprietary rights in the potatoes could be bought and sold on a market. Henceforth, what was part of a cultural practice that was long established had to be protected 
against the possibility of others taking that through property law. And of course, that then remakes the possibilities that people have of what they can do with the objects that make up their world. It remakes their relationship to those objects. So that was one of the one of the breakthrough moments for me was the recognition that when property is invoked in order to re-describe the world we live in, it actually remakes that world. It changes the nature of the objects that we live with, that we inhabit, that feed us, that we use. It changes the relationship between the subjects who use those objects, the human beings who use those objects and those objects. And it does something else. The potatoes now become things. In legal terms, they are not persons, they are things. Whereas for many, many centuries, both in Europe and in the rest of the world, the world we inhabited was part of who we were. What property does is it creates this rather harsh distinction between the thing which can be used and the person who cannot be used, who cannot be instrumentalized. Um, the you know, classical Kantian argument about um, the thing in, uh, uh, things and persons. Um, what I then realized as well in thinking about this example, which I don't speak in detail about in the book, but I do mention, what I then realized is that it's not only that we remake the world as an object of property that can be bought and sold, from which we can profit, from which we can, um, with which we can do a set of things that other people cannot now do because it is our property. What this also does is it begins to structure our relationships to each other. So property doesn't simply define an external object. It defines the relations we have to each other, where we can walk, what we can use, what we can do with objects. Um, and again, in terms of propriety, there was a, a lovely moment, which I, I'm already beginning to answer your next question. But there was a, I was listening to a radio interview with somebody who is from the Ramblers Association in Great Britain. And he told the story. He said um, the, the, the Ramblers story that they tell to themselves whenever they go walking illegally on land that they shouldn't walk on. And the Ramblers are hardly people you would think of as revolutionary activists. They are just walkers. But they tell a story of a man walking across land. A farmer comes to him and says, why are you on my land? And the walker says, well, when did it become your land? And he says, I inherited it from my father. And the walker says, well, where did your father get it from? They go back through the generations. And at some point, the farmer has to recognize that the land is only his because it was taken through violent occupation, that the peasants were thrown off. And the response of the rambler is, well, in that case, let's have a quick fight. Whoever wins the fight, if I win the fight, the land becomes open. If you win the fight, you can keep it to yourselves, because that's the only basis for the property. Um, now, what, what the Ramblers Association story is putting into question is obviously the right to own, delimit, exclude from property. But they're also pointing to the relationship between these two people, the farmer and the walker, that is structured by property. So I began to think of property as an ensemble of relations, a discourse that includes the objects that have been made property, and in being made property, 
have been transformed into things that can be used. And at the same time, the subjects who become remade as subjects of property, both legally, politically, and otherwise. Yeah, and uh, I think that that's a really good connection to um, uh, thinking about the relationship between property and propriety. That is, as you as you alluded to, the subject of of my next uh, question. Um, do you my say apologies book, for jumping between them. Oh, not at all. I think that it's, uh, um, you know, the fact that your response to the question about um, property as a technology of articulation, the fact that that bleeds into the next question about propriety, um, uh, um, it really clarifies or, or exemplifies the close connection between propriety and property. That is the point of your book. Um uh, so what is a proprietary order and how are proprietary orders linked to the distribution of property and property rights? Okay, so obviously that follows on from what uh, we've just been talking about. Um, the Again, this is perhaps something I need to return to um, in future work, but I wanted to rethink theories of hegemony while I was writing the book. And what I was concerned about was finding a way of characterizing a particular social order, what has been called a hegemonic order, in which we recognize that hegemony is not simply about the symbolic framework that structures how we behave. It's also about the ways in which how we behave is organized in relation to the objects of the world we live in, who can make use of things, who can't make use of things, who can go to certain places, who can't go to certain places, who has access to technologies, to wealth, to finance, who doesn't have access. How is that organized? So when I was thinking about a proprietary order, I was thinking both about the orders of property, and for me, property is is crucial, because I, I think I've pointed to this somewhere in the, in the book, that property orders now extend everywhere. They extend to more or less every type of object. They extend, obviously, to human labor that can be sold as property. But they also extend to genetic materials, informational materials, uh, to management techniques. To There's been attempts to privatize names or words, uh, in most cases, those have been unsuccessful. Um, what property does is it relies upon a distinction between persons and things. And I draw here upon the work of Carl Schmitt, but also the work of um, a range of Italian political philosophers, including Giorgio Agamben and Roberto Esposito. Um, and the argument I make is that there is a direct link between what we might call modes of being, how we are deemed to be, who we are, and modes of appropriation, the ways in which the world is appropriated, divided, organized. And then thirdly, the ways in which human time, human labor, human space is appropriated, bought and sold, divided and organized. Um, in making that link, when I talk about this notion of proprietary order, 
I was thinking back to some of the work that has been done by black pessimist scholars around slavery, because the, as we know, the longer history of property is that some persons were deemed at one stage to be things. So the relationship between persons and things is, whether we like it or not, is wholly contingent. It depends upon the ways in which proprietary orders structure and organize the relations between different subjects, different human beings, and the world in which human beings live, and the ways in which legal orders determine who can be proper a proper subject, a subject proper to themselves. Of course, this, the history of slavery is absolutely central to telling this story, but we might also think about the history of gender oppression. We might think about the role of the male proprietor in the home. In the home. If we begin to question those things and we demonstrate their centrality to the history of what I've called a proprietary order, the history of proprietary orders, then in my view, we can begin to rethink capitalism, not as something unified that stretches back to a particular moment in time, whether it be the Industrial Revolution or uh, the movements of people off the land in the 17th century or back to colonization, but we can begin to think of the ways in which different orders of behavior, property, culture, propriety, the ways in which those different orders over periods of time gradually transform, gradually reorganize the relations between subjects, and gradually remake how we conceptualize and come to terms with the world in which we live in. Um, So if I was to summarize just conceptually, a proprietary order, I would say, is an overdetermined systematicity in process that combines a range of practices and a range of apparatuses to determine what is proper in any particular order. And once again, I, I don't like being particularly theoretical when, when in an interview, because I want as many people as possible to be able to access and, and understand what it is I'm saying. But if I just take us back for a moment to the example of the bricklayers, if we think of what they were doing as a language game, And then we think beyond the particularity of that language game, which coordinates the relationship between bricks, the technology of making a wall, and the materials that they're using, which places them in particular positions in which they have to act in certain ways. If we take that small example, and then as I suggested in a previous point, expand that beyond the particular example, to think about the system of labor that structures what they do, to think about how we source the materials to make the bricks, to think about the financial regulations that organize the buying and the selling of bricks, the global market, to think about the colonial histories of the appropriation and use of land that makes the bricks, that makes the cement. Then we can begin to get a sense of how even the smallest technologies the smallest practices, open out onto a whole set of questions, the presuppositions that structure the world we move in and move through. I think that uh, for me, what made this um, um, connection of 
property and propriety and propriety and thinking of um, proprietary orders as um, um, modes of being in the world uh, uh, that are connected to um, uh, modes of appropriation was that uh, as I was reading this book, I was I was researching and writing a dissertation chapter about um, the foundation of the Turkish Republic and. Um, um, basically I was interested in thinking about why the military became such an important, uh, and autonomous political actor in the Turkish Republic. But to me, what I was seeing and, and thinking about, um, um, the role of pop, what is, uh, uh, you know, somewhat euphemistically known as uh, population exchanges between Turkey and Greece at the foundation of the Turkish Republic. And of course, the Armenian genocide, um, what we see is that the formation of the nation state and the idea of one people, one territory um, um, that underlies the imagination of, of a world of nation states um, uh, depended upon the destruction of modes of life that uh, had characterized uh, Anatolian society for, you know, millennia where um, uh, diverse peoples uh, speaking different languages, um, uh, practicing different religions, practicing different uh, um, ways of relating to the land and to the sea and to other communities uh, had lived alongside each other, um, you know, not always in peace, certainly, but more or less cooperatively for, for millennia. And the, the creation of uh, a mono-ethnic Turkish Republic um, uh, brought that to an end. And whenever I see people saying, well, the Turkish Republic wasn't really a, a revolutionary or wasn't really a huge departure from uh, previous modes of being because it didn't, you know, drastically uh, change uh, the experience of, of um, Sunni Turkish peasants in parts of Anatolia that they had lived in for a long time, it overlooks this dramatic change in um, um, who could uh, who could appropriate land and who could reside in, on land and who could uh, have the ability to profit from productive processes that that um, the formation of, of the, the Turkish nation state brought into being. And for me, that really illustrates how uh, this moment of, of dramatic disjuncture and change really illustrates how deep the relationship is between um, property and propriety uh, and, and also how contingent the nation state form is and how recent it is and how artificial it is compared to uh, um, ways that human beings have lived for, for a long time. The, the, uh, and, that, and that's exactly the point um, of the book is that the foundational moments like that were first of all contingent. There's no certainty that the Turkish state would be formed in that way. But then once the state is formed, a whole variety of relationships have to be upturned, have to be remade. And that may take place over time. Um, it doesn't mean that people's cultures or ways of behavior disappear. But if you, for example, have to enter your land on a land registry, if the land you have has been taken away and you then have to lay claim to it, and yet you had no previous record of the land having been yours, 
or the land having been a space that you occupied, um, which I think was was what happened to, 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 to happen to a number of people. If I if I remember the history correctly, in the in in, in the case of um, the the Armenian genocide, um, subsequent to that period, when claims were made on the land, people were asked to prove that it was their land, but of course could not. Um, so the but that's exactly the point. I just take us back to the colonial history as well. One of the most bizarre um, moments in the history of uh, the colonization of other areas of the world is that you would get, for example, Portuguese explorers arriving off the coast of Africa and laying down a foundation stone to lay claim to the property and then getting back onto their ship and leaving and then announcing to the Portu- Portuguese regent that they had uh, this property in this new land um, with no knowledge, of course, that other people lived there. But those property claims then became the basis for the remaking of those lands in the decades and the centuries that followed. Right. Um, Okay, so uh, do you want to take a pause here for a couple of minutes? So in their influential yet controversial work, Hegemony and Socialist Strategy, which you've alluded to already, uh, the political theorists Ernesto Leclau and Chantal Mouffe argue that successful hegemonic projects depend on creating a chain of equivalence among diverse social demands against a common antagonist. You argue that this conception of hegemony is a missed opportunity because it neglects the role that finance plays in articulating forms of political order through the formation of its own equivalential chains. Describe the role that the money form plays in establishing the hegemony of capital. How does this alter our understanding of the relationship between hegemonic projects, as LeClau and Mouffe think of them, and democracy? Great. That's another great question, uh, but a somewhat difficult question to answer very easily. So I want to just for a moment take us back to LeClau and Mouffe. Um, Leclerc and Mouffe had rejected Marx's argument that the equivalential form, money, can in the end be reduced, as Marx does, to the real, to the so-called more real, uh, what Marx calls socially necessary labour time, and that this is the ultimate measure of the value of money, the origin of value, so to speak. Um, now, Leclerc and Mouffe reject that argument, but they then turn from that account of equivalence, money is the general equivalent, um, finance is the general equivalent, they turn from that to language, to symbolic forms of equivalence, to what they call the logic, what Leclerc will later call the logic of the empty signifier, a signifier that comes to stand in for a range of social struggles and in so doing unifies those social struggles in opposition. Now, when I read this many years ago, my initial response was, yes, you're absolutely right. Marx is wrong. We cannot reduce the general equivalent money to some underlying essence, socially necessary labor time, although we shouldn't forget labor, of course. Um, But why is it that having made that argument, you've simply forgotten about money altogether? So the fairly straightforward argument, and in one sense, I I think, uncontroversial claim that I make in the course of writing the book, 
is that we need to return to think about money as a form of equivalence. But then, in the same way that I've spoken about property as a way of articulating the world, we need to think about the ways in which money is used to articulate worlds in particular ways. Now, that comes back to the question you asked about money. And I think the way you phrased the question was, describe the role that the money form plays in securing capitalism. So something along those lines. And let me just put this back to you. I'm not convinced that there is something we can call the money form. Instead, what I would argue is that there are a range of different technologies and different practices that characterize the uses of money, and that we need to begin to understand money in its multiple forms and the effects of money in its multiple forms on structuring how we live today. And if I can just give you a few examples of this. Um, The first is subjectivation. We don't often think, and I'm not thinking of this in terms of uh, the logics of identification that were so central to post-Marxists, but I am thinking of it in terms of the ways in which we as subjects are always structured in a certain relationship to money and to our access to money. The ways in which in the liberal democracies you and I live in, money is absolutely central to every aspect of what we do. Um, I think you probably know that if you don't have a bank account nowadays, it's more or less impossible to even receive a benefits payment from the government for, in the United Kingdom. You can't pick, you know. So, so we're linked into the ways in which money has transformed our very subjectivity. It's remade who we are. But there's a second way in which money plays an absolutely crucial role in the world in which we live in, and that's through a politics of debt. Money is one way of articulating the future, and that's precisely what debt does. Um, If I can take the example of students in the United Kingdom, and this, I am sure, is an example that you in the US are all too familiar with. All too familiar, yes. In in the early two, in the, around about 2010, the government in the UK introduced a system of debt for students. And the idea was ingenious, extraordinarily simple, but ingenious. Students would henceforth pay for their university, but they would pay by taking on a debt so that every year they'd pay £9,000 for the fee and they could then take on other forms of debt to secure the house they lived in, etc. And what this, this now means is that there is a generation of students who are immediately bought into the world of debt and whose future has in some sense been bought because part of the life they live will be spent paying back that debt. That debt then structures all sorts of things, the possibility of a future mortgage, the amount of money they may or may not earn, and there's nothing they can do about us. Um, So, so, The monetary form allows you to do things, if you take this example of debt and the purchasing of the future, it allows you to do things that Leclau and Mouffe's account of equivalence as the articulation between social movements, institutions, etc., doesn't allow you to think. 
And if we're going to understand hegemony, then we have to understand the ways in which different forms of both money, but also a range of other infrastructural logics, such as quality standards, structure the world in which we live. Um, so, yeah, I'll leave it there. Maybe you want to follow up on that, Abbas. Yeah, I, I, I certainly, uh, uh, this is part of my day-to-day experience in terms of thinking about how debt structures occupational decisions. It uh, uh, structures decisions about where, you know, my wife and I can live. Are we going to have children? When are we going to have children? Um, it, it absolutely shapes our, our subjectivity and um, uh, being uh bought into the system of debt also uh, makes us have to think more about, um, am I going to make enough money in the future? Well, certain public interested occupations that, you know, my wife is trained as a social worker. It's difficult for her to actually take jobs in the social work field because our society doesn't invest in in care work, and she has borrowed money to be able to get trained as a social worker. And that makes it hard to actually live on a social work salary. And it's like um, uh, uh, our conception of the public interest is just completely devalued by the sense that everyone has to pay their own way and in, in into the future and pay back their you know the entry ticket that was required to get into occupations to begin with um uh, which, i absolutely which is extra- which is extraordinary as well because the mm-hmm. the education that students undertake is an investment not just in the individual because that's what debt does it makes it an individual investment, but in fact, it's an investment in the future of the society that you live in. So it restructures altogether the way you consider your place in the world, as you've just indicated, in in my view, in nefarious ways. Right. And it structures, uh, restructures education itself, because now, you know, I can't, uh, uh, I can't tell uh, first year students, oh, you know, maybe you should major in something that's actually um, a little more public-minded or citizenship-oriented than just majoring in commerce because they've got a debt to pay back. Like, I totally understand why they would want to major in something that seems safe from the perspective of a career, and yet uh, it means that it becomes harder to justify um, encouraging kids to take liberal arts courses or or courses that you know make them a well-rounded human being and not just the cog in the machine the the um i mean so the way in which you've described it is perhaps the most positive way of understanding that students are responding in a way that where you know one has to consider what one does i've also had something you perhaps haven't seen because it is it has been common practice to to take on a debt for decades in the u.s but I've had students come to me and say, um, you can't fail my essay because I paid for oh, this. Yeah. Uh, which yeah, is absolutely that's definitely, extraordinary. We see, we see versions of that here too, where, uh, um, oh, if you fail this, if you, if I fail this class, then I won't get into law school or medical school and I won't be able to pay back my debt. And, 
Um, just to go back yeah. to a phrase you used a moment ago, education becomes a commodity in this case, rather than a way of realizing the possibilities that human beings have of how they might mm -hmm. actualize their potential in the world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and uh, um, I, I find it hard to, to take your point about chains of equivalence. I find it hard to assimilate this into either um, the logic of equivalence or the logic of difference that um, are kind of the two kinds of political logics that um, that they lay out in hegemony and socialist strategy and in subsequent works because um, um, it, you're you're individuating people and so maybe it's a little closer to a logic of difference in that regard you're you're kind of um, um, breaking up chains of possible, you're making it harder to form chains of equivalence in that way um, by making people feel more individuated and more focused on what they can achieve in their, their individual lives. Um, how, how do you think that's right? That it, it fits into maybe more of a difference logic or how, how I, does that I'm fit not, into the I'm grid? not sure that. So what's interesting about the way in which debt works, so that we can leave aside money, the, the particularities of money uh, as a technology, as a labile practice. But the interesting thing about the way debt works is that it both individualizes and yet at the same time generalizes. So if you think about the, you know, the old style trade union strikes of workers, uh, workers are on the shop floor, they're building a, a, some type of object, a car, say, and when they go on strike, you can no longer, they collectively stop the production of the car and the ability of the factory workers to continue, of the factory to continue to exist. But what debt does is it creates a common debt that every student in the US has. And yet it does so in a manner that is individualized and is linked actually to forms of propriety because debt is also something that induces shame. Uh, Debt is something that people don't, you know, in polite society, you don't speak about your debt. It's not something you bring up. It's something that you deal with in private. Um, so there's, a, there's an extraordinary depoliticization of something which is deeply political um, around debt, which is, you know, one of the reasons that, um, for me, some of the work around that the, the uh, debt jubilee movement instantiated is of particular importance. Right. Um, I know I don't like to tell people about just how big my debt burden is. Uh, it's massive. And uh, uh, partially because I did a master's degree in the UK and uh, um, I don't come from a, a background where my parents could just afford to pay for that kind of thing. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I... <laughs> You know, my when my wife saw it for the first time, I thought, "Oh God, what she gonna what she gonna do when she sees this?" <laughs> she was like, uh, "I'm lucky that she's also pretty left wing and doesn't uh, hold that against me." But um, yeah, it's it's definitely something that's a source of shame and not something that you can easily build, even though people you know that is something that an entire generation of, of students in, in the US or generations of students now um, uh, experience and yet it's hard to build a uh, um, 
a uh, a chain of equivalence around people who uh, uh, have this debt because they either feel too ashamed to talk about it, or they feel they blame themselves for taking on the debt and not and not achieving, you know, being lucky enough is really what it comes down to to get one of the jobs that actually allows you to make enough money to pay off the debt. Well, um, it, it, it's it's either getting the job that allows you to pay off the debts, or alternatively, it's going into education with the parental support or the family support and family property, that means you don't have to take on the debt. Um, and, but either side of that equation is not good. And for, for millions of people, it's not good. I, I mentioned a moment ago, the, and I know this touches again on the, the, one of the questions you wanted to turn to about um, the reconfiguration of existing forms of order, and we'll come to that later. I mentioned the, the debt jubilee movement. Now, the, the basic idea which has been very, very difficult to realize. But the basic idea is that debt is also an extraordinary opportunity because debt individualized gives you no power whatsoever. But debt collectivized is an extraordinary amount of power. You know, 100 US students can threaten a bank by refusing to pay. But the problem is, how do you get to the point where that happens? Now, if you... It, if, if, if students have taken debt from the same bank, the interest rates go up and they decide collectively that they will not pay the debt back. Um, what then happens? The trade union strike doesn't work in this case, but refusing to pay the bank, that might work. Except in the UK, what they've done, unlike in the US, it's done through taxation. So the moment you go above a certain tax threshold, you start paying back the debt. So you lose your income automatically and there's no way of organizing resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's difficult also because, um, the, the subject, the, the experience of these choices, it, uh, is so individuated that it's hard for people to see having a common interest with other people. And, um, and I think that, you know, the politics of, of debt feed as much into opportunity hoarding as they do into any kind of um, um, sense of commonality with other debtors. It's like, well, uh, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure, you know, my children can pay <laughs> back their debt or I can pay, pay back yeah. my debt or that I can avoid having to take out that or I don't um, transfer it onto the next generation. Right. Exactly. And, and in so doing, if that means I have to kick away the ladder or, you know, undermine, uh, other people, you know, so be it. That's very much a part of our education politics in the U S is, is this logic of opportunity hoarding. Um, and of um, course, death is also to go back to the original conversation. Death is very directly linked to property. Because it's, it's families and children who come from families that don't have property and don't have property as a form of investment that uh, find themselves in a position where they then have to take on debts. So, you know, the, the, I mean, the link between property and debt is fairly obvious. The concentration of property means that people have to pay to rent as opposed to own a house. The paying of rent, of course, leads to the fact that you won't own a house and you then have to pay debt for the rest of your life. Um, lack of ownership is all, you know, is all, always already a form of debt, so to speak. Um, 
so you describe uh, an improper politics as practices that intervene in existing forms of order and reconfigure the life world in unexpected ways, but that do not aim to establish a proper order in their own right. Um, we've already talked about the Jubilee campaign as, as a possible example of, of improper politics. Um, but what are some other recent examples of improper politics and how does this understanding of democracy as impropriety challenge deliberative or representative understandings of democracy? Okay, that's great. Again, that's a useful question. Let me just uh, reprise the question by pointing to what some of my friends and colleagues said to me about the book. I said, how can you possibly defend the idea that democratic politics, democratic forms of politics that attempts to instantiate equality, that they're always improper and that they don't lead to the realization of a proper form of order. Um, and in one sense, uh, that's kind of counterintuitive. My, my inspiration here comes from a different source. Uh, it was on reading Jacques Rancière's work on disagreements and his distinction between police and politics. Uh, and one of the points that Rancière makes um, in one of the extended interviews where he's trying to answer his critics, and I think he's right, is that any form of political order, no matter what it is, will always place limits on the possibility of practices of equality. We can't anticipate what those limits might be. We don't know what they'll be. We can't anticipate the forms of protest that might emerge that push us beyond the horizons that we now live in, that make us realize that how we saw the world um, has to be rethought. Um, I, I, so I, th I think of improper forms of politics in a slightly weird way. I think of them as a form of the future imperfect. They establish it, it, the tense, the future imperfect. They establish what will always have been the case. Um, and if I can just give you an example, after the feminist movement of the 1970s, it's impossible for us to look back now, some try to, but for me, it's impossible to look back now and think that the ways in which family life was structured uh, for centuries were acceptable. Or think of trans politics. What those of us who recognize the politics that, that goes with trans interventions in the world, we can no longer look back now and think that it was acceptable to simply police identities in the ways in which they were policed. And we begin to see things in the past that we could not see when we lived in that past. We begin to see the practices, the lives, the performances that people lived on wholly different terms. So, so I think of the improper as the future imperfect. It's saying, yes, we must do this, but at the same time, the future imperfect is something that you never quite realize. It's always, it's not to come in Derrida's sense. It's not the to come that we never get to. It's the insistence on equality here and now, but it's the recognition, and this is my critique of a particular history of the left, that claims to police the limits of what is proper to politics. It's the recognition that we will always, no matter what our best wishes are, no matter what our intentions are, we will always introduce forms of order 
forms of policing, forms of regulation that have unintended consequences or that in fact introduce forms of inequality we could not have anticipated. So that's what the improper points to. That's why I insist that the improper is not a thing, it's not a place, it's not an object, it's it's a stand-in for the impossibility of ever realizing what would be absolute. We'd have to be gods to get to that point. And for me, that's one of the perhaps the most profound um, theoretical and philosophical points that arises broadly from within the discourse and the post-structuralist tradition. You asked how that... I'm sorry, I'll pause, yes? Oh, yeah, I was just going to say this conversation about the uh, improper uh, makes me think about... um, um, what I see as, as kind of a theme in, in post-foundationalist or, or uh, yeah, post-foundationalist ways of thinking about democracy where uh, the idea is that um, uh, we have to uh, find ways to uh, practice and institutionalize reflexivity and um, basically always uh, check ourselves that we're not replacing one uh, a f- uh, form of, of institutionalizing and legitimating and justifying inequality uh, with a new one and just thinking that, okay, we've done our job. We can uh, shut the door on um, um, questioning the foundations of social order. Like we always have to leave open the possibility that our social order is radically problematic yeah. or radically wrong so so I, absolutely that's so i'm i'm working in that tradition but but there is one one element of that tradition that i find deeply deeply problematic um and you may have seen this when you read the book the um, there's a particular way of thinking contingency in the discourse theoretical tradition which is to say that the social order is characterized by a profound lack. And the way in which we respond to that lack is we have what's called in the psychoanalytic tradition, identification. So a hegemonic project is about securing the identification of subjects with new forms of social order. Um, In my view, that simply doesn't follow. If we say that the social order or political order is contingent, if we say that the ways in which we live are contingent, there is nothing that requires us to identify with particular ways of living. And there is nothing that requires the establishment of a hegemonic social order. There may well be, for example, anarchist or other forms of social, uh, other forms of living together that people wish to establish. So I don't really buy this need to identify with a new order. Um, I, in my view, that's, that limits the imaginaries and the possibilities of thinking about the future politics. I agree with you, and and I think that this is something that I've been really struggling with. Um, I've been uh, reading, you know, based on a similar uh, psychoanalytical um, um, foundation, uh, the ontological security literature and international relations theory, that uh, kind of that um, 
um, explains a lot of what goes on in the world uh, uh, by this, you know, almost primordial need that humans feel to uh, uh, identify with the social order, identify with uh, some kind of symbolic uh, foundation and uh, the, you know, uh, anxiety that people feel if they're not, you know, identifying with some kind of uh, uh, symbolic order. And uh, I agree with you. I think that that, um, you know, first of all, it's empirically difficult to verify. I am an empiricist at the end of the day, uh, uh, and I find it uh, uh, difficult to uh, uh, to, to see that. But at the, at the same time, I, I, I think your point about how limiting that is from the standpoint of, of democratic theory and of, of any kind of emancipatory, uh, project, um, because it means that, uh, this very idea of holding open the, the symbolic center of the, the social is, is basically impossible. And I, I don't think that that's, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think that the grounds for believing that are very solid. And I think that that's a really troubling, uh, normative, uh, consequence of, of the kind of Lacanian, uh, uh, psychoanalytic strain and, and post foundation. I, I have, and you probably gathered this from reading the book. I have profound mm-hmm. problems with the Lacanian problematic, and I think it's, it has actually undermined some of the more interesting ways in which discourse theory could have developed. Um, could I just, just one very quick point though, because the, and, the, and this is something that goes back to why I use the phrase the improper as opposed to lack or, you know, a, a range of other possible words I could have used. Um, it, w- when we use the phrase, and perhaps in the way I've just described it, um, I'm indicating that there's always the possibility that we have done things that introduce forms of inequality we hadn't anticipated. By the same token, I want to insist that what this also allows is for the insistence that some things simply are not the case, that some ways of being together must not be the case. In other words, I don't want to get rid of what on the left was called the long history of commitment, a politics of commitment. Um, But I think that commitment has to be somewhat different. And if I can just give one very simple example about this, if you think about contemporary debates about climate change, um, in the post-truth world of Donald Trump, more or less all of the key forms of regulating environmental destruction in the US, uh, he attempted to get rid of. Um, On the basis that the science was simply not the case. Now, I, I... My response to this is not to say the science is not the case, but it's to kind of be, you know, like Karl Popper about this or um, a range of other philosophers of science, which is to say that what the science tells us is always open to the possibility that it will be improved, but that doesn't mean the science is wrong. Likewise, when it comes to a politics of equality, let's I mentioned trans rights a while ago, the recognizing the fluidity of gender, recognizing the that the history of the attempt to police gender is deeply problematic, uh, means that we have to make certain commitments at the same time. 
Um, those commitments, of course, in the long ter- in the longer term, may lead us to do things that we perhaps regret and we need to rethink. But I don't want to. I don't think we live in a world that is wholly contingent. The sedimented forms of order sometimes, not always, do institutionalize ways of living and being together that are better than they were before. But that's not an absolute judgment. It's you know, it's it's, it's part of the political praxis that we live through. Right. Um. So after establishing your concept of democracy as improper politics, you address recent intellectual and political debates about whether populism is compatible with the left-wing politics or whether the practice of uniting a people against a common antagonist uh, leads too easily to racist and xenophobic politics. Why do you reject the claim that populism is necessarily linked to reactionary politics and what would a transnational populism look like? So you said a moment ago that you're an empiricist, that you mm-hmm. you, you trust the evidence in one sense. Um, so let me be uh, let me use Foucault's phrase, a happy positivist, um, as opposed to an empiricist. Um, my experience of this comes from Latin America. So whilst I was writing this book, I was also completing a research project that was called Transnational Populism. And I was working with a very good friend of mine, Paolo Biglieri, who is a professor in um, Argentina, who's also actually published a, a fabulous recent book on populism with which I disagree with more or less everything she says, but the book is fantastic. Um, but I was working with Paolo on this idea of transnational populism. And we were looking at the ways in which populist parties across Latin America and populist governments across Latin America had worked together for the exchange of commodities, the exchange of resources, the exchange of knowledge, and had attempted to establish a different form of global order that linked them. Uh, When Macri came to power, he more or less brought that alliance of Latin American nations to an end. Um, But what this led me to think is that the notion of populism refers back to the people. But the notion of people doesn't of necessity refer to the nation state. Um, You know, I say you you are a member of what we call humanity, the people. Um, So there's something in populism about the appeal to the people that for me needs to be delinked from nationalism. And this was something that has begun to be practiced in those Latin American forms of politics. Uh, So I agree with you that if we reduce populism to the study of the, in inverted commas, people, then what we very often end up with is forms of xenophobia, forms of racism, forms that exclude migrants. So the challenge I had when I was thinking about populism was given that my notion of democracy is not about a regime, a conceptualized democracy as a practice that puts equality to work. How is it that populism might put those forms of equality to work? And the truth is that the only regimes that we've seen in the last 20 years, 30 years, that have in fact redistributed wealth, that have seen a reduction in inequality, that have seen a reduction in the number of children who can't access school or food or water 
was in the case of the populist regimes in Latin America. So it would be foolish simply to reject that as reactionary politics. We have to acknowledge their limits. There were limits and there are limits. But by the same token, what I wanted to think was this notion of transnational as something that begins to put into question the very idea of nation. And I think you probably read in the book, I did something which I'm still slightly uncomfortable with. I drew on the work of Jack Halberstam. And uh, Jack Halberstam in his book on trans indicates that when he's summarizing trans politics, he says what trans points to is the failure of our systems of classification as a starting point. That's what it points to. And of course, he's talking in this case about the politics of gender. But think about citizenship. Think of the ways in which we classify every human being as a member of a nation, as being a citizen, as having access to rights because they are a citizen. And then think about the crisis on the Mexican border. Think about population movements across Latin and Central America. Think about the population um, migration immigration from Syria into Europe following the war. Think about the ways the US and the UK has operated in wars across the globe. Think about the transnational institutions that structure and delimit what nations can do. So what I was interested in doing with this idea of trans, a transnational populism was to think through the failure of our systems of classification and in doing so to think about new ways of establishing how we think about what might be the people. Yeah, and and in thinking about uh, your examples um, of, of classificatory failures, it's for me, it's not just uh, um, migration or or international re- regimes, but it's also, I think, again about the foundation of the Turkish Republic and the foundation of other uh, uh, nation states in the uh, often arbitrary decisions they had to make about who was a citizen and who, you know, who is a Turk. Uh, is it somebody who lives in Anatolia? Is it somebody who speaks Turkish at home, but maybe uh, practices Aleviism or some other kind of heterodox form of Islam? Um, is it necessarily a Sunni Muslim Turk? Could a person who migrated to Anatolia when from the Ottoman, the former uh, Balkan territories of the Ottoman Empire, are they a Turk? Um, um, and and I think that uh, all attempts to fabricate this whole idea of an autochthonous population out of the reality of, of heterogeneity um, uh, are doomed to have classificatory failures in this way. But um, yeah. Jeff, the, the example that uh, you will have read in the book that I use, and it's one I'm continually fascinated by, is what happened in Slovenia. Um, at the at the beginning of the Yugoslav Wars in the early 1990s, and the the emergence of a group of people called the Erased. And for, for listeners who don't know the story, um, twenty five thousand people lost their citizenship in the space of a few months' time because Slovenia 
declared independence. And when we look at Yugoslavia, we always think of, U- of Slovenia as the success story. But there was this very weird moment when the Slovenians seceded from Yugoslavia and they had to determine membership of Slovenia. But there were 25,000 people who, are, who refused to take up Slovenian citizenship. And they came to be known as the Erased. They basically, they, they suffered symbolic death. Uh, they could not legally die. They could not legally own their own properties. Uh, there were cases where people died and there was nowhere for them to be buried because they were deemed not to exist because they didn't exist on the register of citizens in Slovenia. So families ended up burying people in gardens. Um, so this quite extraordinary moment uh, indicates for me what you've just spoken about in, in, you know, in relation to Turkey and the examples that you're talking about. The, our failure to recognize that any system of classification, and this goes back to the point I made earlier on about the realization of democratic orders, no matter what that order is, no matter how it classifies, there are always going to be these strange moments that pop up and point to the limits of the equality that we claim to have realized. Um, So I want to wrap up the interview by asking you, uh, what are you working on now? What's your next project? I'm actually working on two projects at the moment. Um, The first project is perhaps slightly surprising, given the book that I've written or Maybe you won't be that surprised. Um, I'm working on a manuscript which is titled Climate Populism. And uh, the argument here is is fairly straightforward. The the argument I'm developing is that uh, contemporary theorists of populism, and there's a range of different approaches, have completely and utterly failed to think about the ways in which the politics of environmental degradation and destruction feeds into the articulation of populist movements. Um, And that's the case both for right-wing populisms that on the one hand condemn arguments about climate and on the other hand articulate the notion of the people in relation to lost jobs, industries that are closing down, forms of extractivism that are threatened. So there's that. The other side of the argument concerns the left-wing populist um, movements in the Latin America. And in that case, what they did was they relied for the redistribution of income on on an export boom of soya, of oil, of coal, of a range of other products. But of course, that had severe environmental consequences. Um, So one of the things I'm trying to do is to think in the case of Latin America about the ways in which the export boom has led to emerging splits in the populist movements between, for example, indigenous activists who insist upon the protection of land, insist upon the protection of the Amazon, for example, and the workers who were articulated to those populist movements in the name of redistribution, who themselves are responsible for the forms of climate active, uh, for, for, for the forms of destruction of the climate that we're all too familiar with. Um, so, so I think that that's. I'm hoping that that will be a, a, a unique intervention in the debates about populism, and at the same time force us to rethink how we conceptualize the people. So it's partly a conceptual intervention 
in, to think the people as discursive in the way in which I described at the beginning of this interview, that is to think of the people as articulated to a set of practices that include the land, the environment, the air, the water, um, in order to then rethink populism. So that's the one project. The second project is I'm working with my colleague Herman Primera. Um, Herman is a scholar of uh, black pessimism. Um, he's written a book on the work of Agamben. And what he and I are doing is we are writing a book on the emerging forms of uh, care and politics as improper. So we're looking at a range of different practices, including care uh, as one example, including uh, different forms of occupation. Um, we're looking at uh, basically... We, we're taking a set of different forms of protest and we're trying to give some type of conceptual apparatus that begins to think the ways in which people are remaking their own worlds using the language and the practices that those people have themselves engaged in. Uh, and that's with Edinburgh University Press. It'll be coming out next year. Those projects both sound really exciting. Um, I, I had the opportunity to interview Theo Rio Francos about her book, Resource Radicals, which was all about the, the conflict in Ecuador between um, um, indigenous peoples and, and uh, the Rafael Correa government, which came to power on the basis of populist claims and the mobilization of indigenous people. Uh, but the, the conflicts that played out within that coalition over uh, exactly what you were talking about, the environmental damage that comes from uh, extractivism, but also the reliance of the state uh, on the the money that uh, resources pr uh, bring in in order to um, provide social services and redistribute wealth. Um, uh, so I'm very interested to see how your work uh, contributes to that uh, growing literature on on extractivism and resource nationalism and, and uh, uh, conflicts with decolonial activism in those settings. Uh, one of the things I'm trying to um, obviously introduce to those debates mm -hmm. is, is property. And the, and the role of property as a technology that secures extractivism but also is then used to justify extractivism. Because once property has been established, uh, there are then certain rights that the property owners have that immediately exclude objections and protests. And then the question, of course, is what's the relationship between a state that's trying to begin to address climate damage and the property owners whose property is secured by the state when you have a state that at the same time is saying there are limits on the ways in which you can use your property, and how does that then feed into the new forms of right-wing politics that we see emerging? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, my guest today was Mark Deveni talking about Towards an Improper Politics, which is out from Edinburgh University Press. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Jeff, and and thanks for reading the book. It's uh, it's a great privilege to speak to somebody who's actually read the book. <laughs>